Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Lord, I ask that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak and open our hearts and minds to that which you have for us. Father, as we continue our series on 2 Samuel, Lord, as we explore David's life, Father, I ask that you would help us to continue to learn from it, that you would teach us about this most interesting man, that this this man who was a musician, a poet, a prophet, a king, Lord, that you would teach us what it is to be a man after your own heart, as David was. He was a failure in many ways, but he was a success in many others. Lord, teach us what it is to follow you, to be a faithful person, even despite our failures. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was reading uh, a Ben Patterson, and he's, he has made me glad, InterVarsity 2005, and he tells the story of Jim Sleekove. And Jim Sleekove was his supervisor, and he was his supervisor for six summers. And he said, I used to teach at a Forest Home, a Christian conference center in California. I held a responsible position, he says, over junior hires and over senior hires. And during those times, if you've ever been uh, in a responsible position over junior hires and senior hires, and you've been a youth minister, uh, um, you've undoubtedly played practical jokes on other youth ministers. And he did that a lot. Uh, but maybe he got a little bit carried away, and he couldn't pass up the chance to play a prank. Like the time he passed off laxative gum as chewing gum to some of his co-workers. Where the rigorous purgatives effect got back to Jim. And he asked me to come into his office the next day for a little chat. And he describes it as a long, awkward silence as he leaned back in his chair and he looked up at the ceiling. Were those tears in his eyes? As he whispered, Benny, Benny, he repeated twice. And he got control of his emotions. So I guess Benny had pulled many, too many pranks. (laughs) My arguments disappeared in a vapor as I tried to argue in vain, he was saying. I'd gone way over the line of propriety, not to mention compassion. I owed my victims an apology. I talked about my impulsiveness, or rather, he talked to me about my impulsiveness, and my vindictiveness, and the meaning of Christian community, and the responsibilities that go with compassion and leadership. In saying the hard thing to me, Jim was always gracious. His goal was not to tear down, but to build up. It seems that leadership is in short supply in our day and age. Have you ever wondered why that is? We long for strong, incompetent leaders, but I think we get the leaders that we deserve. And part of that reason is In our culture, we tend to tear down leaders whenever we find them. And as a consequence, is it any surprise that strong and competent leaders now avoid leadership positions at all costs? I mean, think about this. Would you ever want to be president, given the scrutiny that anyone who runs for office goes through? Is it any surprise that power-hungry, greedy, or popularity-seeking leaders eagerly take the place of strong and competent 
leaders. Leadership, it seems, is a quality that is in massive undersupply in our culture. We don't know how to be leaders because we don't have many strong leaders after which to model. Our young people don't know how to be leaders because there's no one they can follow. We don't know how to be leaders because leaders are quickly abandoning their posts or they're being knocked out of their posts left and right. We live in a cynical culture who's doing everything they can to knock them out of power. So where do we go to learn about leadership in our day and age? Well, I would posit that King David in First and Second Samuel is a great place to start. Now that may sound odd to you if you've ever read anything about King David, if you've ever learned about King David, we often go immediately, and because that's the way we think about leadership, right to his failures. When you think about David, you think about what? Bathsheba. You may also think about Goliath, but we want to go right to his failures. We don't want to go to his successes. That's the nature of being a modern American or a modern European. We always want to pick apart failures. And yet David has a lot of successes as we are going to see. Now last week our video was down and everyone missed Father Scott's sermon or Pastor Scott's sermon, depending on which background you come from. <clears throat> An Anglican pastor can be called father or pastor. But I encourage you to read chapters 1 through 4 of 2 Samuel. They're very interesting and to catch up on where we are. And there's no way we can cover all of this in depth during ordinary season, which is the time from Pentecost until Christ the King Sunday or Advent, just right before Advent. And we can't cover all of this passage in depth. I mean, all of this book in depth. And so we're going to have to jump around. And right now we're going to jump from where Scott covered uh, to chapter 5, uh, where David picks up and he becomes king over Israel. But I'm going to briefly cover what happens in the middle and to how David becomes king king. Now the commander of the opposing of the army opposing David, and that's what Scott talked about last week, was Abner. Abner was an impressive man, and he was an impressive general. And he ruled under Mephibosheth, sorry, Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul through David's best friend Jonathan. And that's who is really covered in the in-between time, between when Scott preached in chapter 3 and then chapter 4 and to where we pick up this morning. Ish-bosheth was his nickname. Ish-bosheth was his name. His full name was Mephibosheth. And he took over the twelve or the ten tribes of northern Israel. They, they kind of, we talk about the ten and the two tribes, but really all the tribes that intermarried, so it wasn't really ten and two, but but David primarily was of Judah, and so Judah really was the one who followed him. We call the southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom, we say ten tribes, but really all the tribes were pretty mixed by then. <clears throat> but you had a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was following David, and the northern kingdom was following Mephibosheth. They were following Saul, his, his grandson. And he was ruling in defiance of Samuel. 
Remember in 1 Samuel 16.1, the Lord, or Yahweh, said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And if you go to 1 Samuel 16.12-13, you read, And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him. For this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, who is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, and from that day forward. So David is anointed as the king of Israel. So here Jonathan's son is rejecting that anointing, and he's leading an army against David. And Abner was leading that army, and then Abner, of course, wants to make peace with David. And he read, of course, and if you read that story, then Joab kills Abner. The leader of David's army kills Abner. <clears throat> well, that didn't sit well with David's opponents, right? That, that David was going to rise up and be king. That didn't sit well with David's opponents as expected. And this is a little bit shocking to us. You see, a lot of times when we think and we read history, we think, wow, well, this was a religious kingdom. These people were spiritual, and so they must have been guided by spiritual principles. And this is a mistake. This is a mistake that a lot of us make. <clears throat> this has been something that's often attacked in, in modern uh, classrooms. It's been attacked really for the last 150 years. But I heard it all the time in my history classrooms in the 1980s and the 1990s when I was in college. Uh, professors would always be attacking Christianity, and they would talk about wars, and they would talk about religious wars, and they would talk about how Christian kings were fighting each other, and how we can't give, uh, we can't give empires or we can't uh, give empires over to Christianity, how we have to have secular empires, because in secular empires we don't fight wars. We only fight bloody wars under Christian empires or for religious reasons, Right? And we've learned in the last hundred years that there are no battles fought for secular reasons, right? We've learned that very well, right? We, we've learned that from Hitler and Stalin and Mao. And, oh, wait a minute. There are secular battles as well. Well, it turns out, though, when you look in history, many of the battles that we thought were fought for Christian reasons or Jewish reasons or whatever are also fought for secular reasons, Right? And one of the things we look at when we look at David's reign is we learn that Mephibosheth was not ruling for Christian reasons. He just wants power. And we learn this all the way through Christian empires as well. People in the past were no different than people in our day and age. We have politicians today, right, who will claim to be Christians to gain power if it's going to get your vote. We have politicians in other countries who will claim to be Muslim if it's going to get that vote or Mormon if it's going to get your vote. And all throughout history, we've had politicians who will claim faith if it's going to get your vote. Whatever it takes to get your vote and to get an army to follow them, that's what it's going to take. And it turns out that people in the past were no different than people in the present. Sometimes they are going to fight for religious reasons, but as we see throughout the kingdom of Israel and throughout their reign of all the different kings, a lot of times it's going to simply be for pure power. And here we have a situation for pure power. Mephibosheth wants power. He wants to reign. And so he wants to rule. And he thinks he should rule because he has the blood lineage of Saul. And so you have this battle that's going to take place throughout Israel's existence. Should God choose the king 
or should it be from the lineage, from a blood lineage? Now, in our culture, we don't have that. We have elections, and they're passed down, and so far, they've been peaceful. There may come a day when that transition of power is not peaceful, but through most of human history, transition of power may not always be so peaceful. There's always been kind of a, a, kind of a riskiness, right? Uh, one person wants power, and when the king dies, there may be an uncle or a brother or an aunt or a sister. There may be this risky transition, and that's what's happening with David right now now. So what happens right before our chapter is Mephibosheth was laying in bed. Abner had died, his general. And Mephibosheth was lame. When he was a young boy, his nursemaid had tried to sneak him out of the castle when someone was about to kill him, and she had stumbled, and she had fallen. And when she fell, she fell and crushed his leg. And so he had difficulty walking. And these two men, thinking that they were going to gain King David's favor, snuck into his room in the middle of the night, and they plunged a, son, uh, plunged a knife into his gut. They plunged a knife into his belly, And then they come back later, and they cut off his head. Now, one of the things about we know from war is that a belly wound is a nasty way to go, right? It's one of the nastiest ways to go. So these men not only lack the courage to fight him, who is already handicapped, they kill him, and then they come back, they let him suffer, and then they come back and they kill him. Now, most kings would be ecstatic about somebody killing their enemy. My enemy is vanquished. And the men who killed Mephibosheth know this and are expecting a great reward. And that's why David's response here is so astonishing. 2 Samuel 4, 8-12. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ish-bosheth, remember that's his name, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimnon, the Barathite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him, and I killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Bloody. <laughs> and this book is bloody. But it also says a lot about who David is as a person. He simply doesn't believe that a king should be killed like this. Yes, Ishbosheth rebelled. But Ishbosheth was a king, and he had a right to claim the throne. And David went to battle with him, but Ishbosheth didn't deserve to die like this. And what's more, Ishbosheth was the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. David didn't wish ill will on him. David is a king that's unlike other kings. He doesn't want vengeance on, his, on this man. He doesn't want to see ill will fall upon him. 
There's something different about this king, and we see there's something different about this man from the very beginning. We've already seen it in 1 Samuel, where David is persecuted endlessly and given chance after chance after chance. He refuses to kill King Saul, and even when another man does kill King Saul, he executes that person for killing King Saul. Here again, his enemy is killed, and he takes revenge on that enemy. He executes them. Because that's what a king can do. Remember, he's operating in the power of the state. And he has them executed. David calls Ish-bosheth righteous. David considers the battle between them justified. Even if Ish-bosheth is not following after what God has spoken through the prophet Samuel. David's a godly man. And he's a godly king. And unlike King Saul, he's going to ensure that God's laws are followed to the best of his ability. This is the mark of a godly leader. You want to be a godly leader, you do godly things, even when it's difficult. Even when other people aren't doing godly things. He's going to ensure that God's laws are followed to the best of his ability. Now, as we're going to see, David's going to be far from perfect. And it's going to be easy to pick apart David's failures. Now, in our current environment, remember, I I say we live in a culture that excels at picking apart failures. Right? I was just uh, reading the other day, uh, one of the leaders in Boeing had to resign because of an article he wrote in 1987 as a 27-year-old, right? We're picking apart leaders left and right for all kinds of things. That's what we're doing right now. And we're seeing other leaders lack the courage to defend them. We specialize in it. We are truly making it an art form. But if you read on past the reign of David to the kings that follow him, you'll see that David's imperfections pale in comparison to the wickedness in which they indulge. You see, in our current culture, when we pick on others, there is no redemption, right? There is no repentance. There is no ability to gain redemption. And one of the things that Scripture teaches us is that we are all sinners. We all fail. And one of the reasons that I love David so much and that David is put forth as a godly man is that even when he fails, and he will fail, and he will fail spectacularly, is that he gets up and he repents, right? He repents, he he pours ash and he dresses in sackcloth, He turns to the Lord, he asks for his forgiveness, and he gets up and he tries again. And David is a lot like us. Yes, many of us will not fail to the level of David, but also none of us have been kings and queens. We don't have the power that David has. And we also didn't live pre-Christ. And when David is compared to his peers, the kings and queens, his imperfections will pale in comparison to the wickedness in which they indulge. 
And David's good deeds and holy behavior earns him the respect of the people of Israel up until this point. 2 Samuel 5, 1-5 Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Ebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Ebron, and the king David made a covenant with them at Ebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 33 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years at Ebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah at 33 years. He teaches us the nature of leadership, that even in difficult times, even when, when folks made it, make it difficult on a godly leader, a godly leader still acts as God would. Even in the Old Testament, David acts in a Christ-like fashion, though he would call it a God-like fashion because he doesn't know Christ yet. He doesn't take revenge upon the northern kingdom. Instead, he earns their respect. Do you earn the respect of your enemies? Do you earn their respect or do you wish revenge upon them? He'd already earned much with the death of Abner. Here again with the demonstration of justice when their king was brutally murdered, he shows wisdom in how he acts. He doesn't gloat in victory. Do you gloat in victory? And then he immediately moves with Israel and Judah combined. He takes both groups and he goes and he does a project and he conquers Jerusalem, which will become the city of David. So what do we learn from this? Many of you are in leadership in your companies in this town or in organizations in this town. If not, one day you will be. What kind of leader are you? What kind of leader do you desire to be? Do you reflect anything of Jesus in your leadership style? Are you harsh and merciless? Or are you just firm and fair? Are you snarky and mean? Do you lord it over others? Are you caring? God gives us leadership positions for a reason, even in the secular world. It tells you a lot about yourself and it helps you learn a lot about yourself, but He puts other people under you, not for your own glory, but so that you can serve others so that you can help others. He puts people under your charge so that you can care for them and help them to be the best that they can be even in a secular setting. Especially in a secular setting. You need to see them as the people with whom God has charged you. You need to see them as people who are made in God's image. Do you? Or do you see them as people? People to glorify you. People to make you look good. People that are your playthings. They're not there to make you look good. You're there to serve them and to help them shine at what they do. And yes, that means bringing justice and setting standards, but more often than that, 
It means getting to know your people and helping them grow and become better at what they do and better people in general. This week, this week, commit your leadership life to prayer. Ask God to show you where it is you are doing well and where it is you need improvement and where it is you are failing. Ask Him to help you become a light in the darkness to your people and to become the leader that your organization needs you to be and that your people under you need you to be. Amen.